on the shelf above my desk is a battered exercise book, the kind used by generations of Australian primary school children, one that, in defiance of calculators, has tables of cubic tons and hectares and other measurements marching across the back cover. On the front cover is a small panel with these words printed carefully by hand. Name, Kenneth Bernard Cook. School, Fort Street Boys High. Age, 56 and three quarters. That exercise book, one of the few tangible legacies of my brief marriage, is my portal into the past. Whenever I look at it, I see a tall man with curly salt and pepper hair and a piratical beard hunched over a too small desk, squinting through smeared glasses held together with sticky tape as words flowed smoothly from the nib of his fountain pen onto the page. A glass of Victoria bitter or whiskey and a cigarette always stood ready whenever inspiration failed, which it rarely did, though the glass was always emptied. If he couldn't think of a word for a minute or two, he would scribble. He often drew long, strange animals with droopy tails, whiskers and lolling tongues and crosses for eyes. Once I asked him why he kept drawing pictures of rats. He explained rather huffily that they were not rats, but ferrets, and he just liked drawing them. That was all. But there were often times when numbers, not words, flowed from his fluent pen. Several pages of an exercise book display columns of figures and percentages, all related to money, income and expenditure. In the time we were together and thereafter, these calculations had a greater influence on our shared life than any words he wrote. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Jacqueline Kent reading from her new memoir, Beyond Words, A Year with Kenneth Cook, which details her relationship with the author of the Australian classic thriller, Wake in Fright. Jacqueline has worked as a journalist, broadcaster and book editor, and is the author of several books, including The Making of Julia Gillard. Jacqueline, thanks so much for joining us to chat about Beyond Words. Oh, thanks, Angus. So we just heard you reading that passage about Kenneth Cook's exercise book. Why did you choose to use that object to introduce your readers to him? <laughs> well, I've always liked that bit about uh, age 56 and three quarters. That's really basically why. But also the ferrets. The thing about it was that the ferrets were actually the logo of a newspaper of the time, which was called Nation Review. And he liked it and and always thought that the ferrets said something about, I don't know, about existence or something or other, I'm not sure. For the uninitiated, how would you describe Kenneth's classic novel, Wake in Fright? Yes, it's a good question, isn't it? It was the second novel he wrote, the first one he wrote, didn't go anywhere. It was actually pulped because um, he got too close to a court case that he was covering as a journalist. Wake in Fright really is the story of a young school teacher called John Grant, who, for various complicated reasons, finds himself stranded in an outback town called Bundan Yabba, which is based on Broken Hill, sort of, but it's any huge outback town. 
And it really describes, in a weekend, his slow decline, which is fueled by alcohol and guns and a couple of very strange people. It was published, actually, in about 1961. It's really the forefather of those John Jarrett outback horrible thrillers and all those other books that have been written about you don't know what's out there. I think, actually, Wake in Fright was the first of those. I mean, other people had written about the bush is not a friendly place. I mean, Henry Lawson and so forth. But you don't get a feeling of the menace of the outback, not, I think, until Wake in Fright turned up. It's been an incredibly um, influential novel in that respect, and it still reads well. So it really was the precursor to, you know, um, Wolf Creek and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, Wolf Creek and all those those horror movies and in the outback, and it's actually used as a bit of a bit of a meme, I suppose, or a trope, because people say things like, um, oh, it's pure wake in fright, which means somebody's stranded in a very nasty town to whom very nasty things happen in the outback. So, yeah, it's really resonated. It really picked up something about, you know, the good old Australian psyche. And I honestly don't think that Ken knew what he was doing in the way writers generally don't. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember you saying that in the book that obviously that was just the book that he became so famous for and there's just no way that any of us really know how to emulate that sort of response in terms of capturing a national psyche or anything like that. No, and it's always, it's like all those things, it just happens completely by accident really, or not by accident, but you you can't sort of sit down and think, I'm going to capture the national psyche. Yes, well we'd all be rich in the book industry if we could. Oh yeah, we only publish bestsellers, right, (laughs) I know, I've heard it. (laughs) So uh, another adaption hit screens in 2017 of Wake Oh that's right, yes it did. Yeah, Mm. it brought that story to a whole new audience. Mm. Um, Could you make any guess? as to why it's continued to enthrall people? Actually, the interesting thing about that adaptation is that they kept sort of bringing in bits and pieces to make it more relatable. But if you look at the movie, there was a movie made in 1971, which is around. Um, It is such a strong story that you really don't need to update it to any great extent. It's what it said about... Australia then, it still is still true. There are still towns with with people who say this is the greatest little place in the world. There are still people who, you know, drink too much, shoot kangaroos, all that stuff. And what made it interesting, I think, was that the main character, John Grant, was a city character, and he was looking at this from the point of view of a total outsider and most Australians are urban Australians and so I think that was a very important element in the book too. So where were you at in life when you met Kenneth Cook? (laughs) Well, where was I? Well, advancing youth, I suppose, rapidly approaching middle age. No, I was actually in my 30s and I'd known about him for a little while because everybody knew about him and mainly because of what he'd written, but also because he was a bit of a wild man. And I thought, oh, tedious, you know. And and then I met him at a dinner party and found he was not exactly that kind of person at all. So I really wasn't planning I really wasn't planning to fall in love with anybody really. I was I was perfectly happy. I was working as an editor and I'd had relationships before of course and Things were going along all right, and I quite liked the way life was going. Thank you very much. And this volcanic person turned up, 
And I thought, oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you initially met him at like a small dinner party, mm. and then it was a, a few years later that you ended up editing a short story collection <laughs> yeah, of his. It was about a year later. A I year think. later. Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was hilarious. He just, I thought, okay. Well, he kept. He actually, in between that, he met me at the dinner party and decided he quite liked me. So he kept ringing me up and asking me out. And I thought, I'll get lost, you know, I've got work to do. And, you know, he was engaged to somebody else who happened to be the hostess at that said dinner party. And I thought, I don't do this, you know, I don't do this sort of thing, no. And so I sort of told him to go away and he did, which annoyed me slightly, (laughs) but he did. (laughs) And then then a small publisher rang up and said that there was a book of Bush short stories that needed an editor and would I be interested? And I thought, oh, no, you know, Bush short stories, Stone the Crows, you know, all that sort of fair dinkum stuff. And I thought, nah. And then she she said, "Um, they're written by Kenneth Cook. Have you heard of him? And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. So I said, oh, well, right then. So, you know, send it over. So I did. And the next thing I knew, Ken was on the phone and he started off saying, Miss Kent, in that voice, Miss Kent, um, I have to tell you that I'm very particular about the words I use. It's a very cultivated boy's voice on its best behaviour. Sort of, it, And I would like to tell you, Miss Kent, that I don't like to use lots of different words to describe how people say things. I don't like adverbs. Don't say... He, he said squeamishly or crossly or politely or anything. Just say he said. Is that clear? And I thought, oh, for goodness sake. So I said, all right, Mr Cook, and would you like me to put hyphens between the syllables of the hard words as well? <laughs> <laughs> and there was this pause and I thought, oh, good, I've got him. And then he said, I think we should have lunch. <laughs> so we did. And that was that. Yes. It was the beginning of that anyway. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like he uh, sort of bolshiness was what caught his eye, really, in both the first instance that you met him and obviously that one. Which is interesting because normally um, I wasn't all that bolshy around around blokes particularly. Um, But I just looked at him and when I first met him, I thought, I can do this. I can... I can give as good as I get with you. It'll be fine. And it was. It's really funny because in the book you write about uh, being a little bit worried maybe that you weren't going to like the stories, uh, the short stories, because obviously an author could tell immediately if you didn't actually like them. Did you end up liking those stories? Yes, I did. And the interesting thing about that is that it's one of those editorial principles, one of the principles you get to as an editor. If you don't like the author that's fine. That is okay. I mean, you can handle that. I mean, we all have to deal with people we're not crazy about. If you don't like the book, you're in trouble because an author will pick that up in about four seconds and they just will because they're kind of ready to be worried or aggressive or feeling vulnerable anyway. So so that was that. I did read them. I thought they did precisely what they were meant to do, which was to entertain and there was some very nice word use of words in it and it's quite a lot of craft in them. And the stories were funny. And writing humour is something that I think has been extremely undervalued, particularly in Australia. We've got some very good humorous writers, um, but everybody thinks it's easy. It is not. It depends enormously on timing and wordplay and ridiculousness and all sorts of all sorts of things that you know, don't happen immediately. But he could do it. 
he could actually do it. And after Wake in Fright, which is not particularly funny, although there is sort of, it's got a light tone to it, but, you know, what it's describing is not precisely fun. I was really interested to see that, that he could, that he had enough range to be able to do that. Yeah, Yeah, it's so funny. People might be surprised to hear that he wrote humorous stories because uh, in the book you describe uh, Wake in Fright as a book that was written out of an understanding of human frailty, a dislike of the cherished Aussie myth of mateship and a deep sense of pessimism. All of that, all of that. And in fact, he was a very, he sort of had all those things. But I also say somewhere else in there, for every quality that I found in him, he seemed to embody its opposite. So he was a lunatic optimist with a deep sense of pessimism. I don't know why, but he was. (laughs) Yeah, you really do get uh, an idea of him as just a man of many, many paradoxes. Yeah, I never really got to the end of him in terms of that. He could be crass, and I mean totally insensitive to people and other times he was he was somebody if anybody was in hospital or ill he was there he was absolutely wonderful about that and he didn't like emotion but he did once say to me cry if you need to sweetheart you have things to cry about and I've never forgotten that either that's that's wonderful and he smoked and drank and ate healthily. I mean, as if that was going to make much difference. But, um, yeah, it was just you never knew what you were going to get. And that's yeah. what made it interesting. And I really do think that not being bored is worth a great deal. So, yeah, you said um, before you used this description of uh, Kenneth Cook's arrival in your life as volcanic. Mm. Why do you use that description? Well, basically because he sort of turned, he just turned up and said, oh, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And I thought... No, we're not. <laughs> so I pushed back and he actually introduced me to a lot of things, <laughs> including um, a few things that I would rather not have been introduced to, but there you go. But he had a, you see, the thing was that I was living um, by myself and I had a family of my own, but I didn't sort of, wasn't close to them. Ken was incredibly close to his four children, all of whom were nearly as old as me. And that was something to get. That was an adjustment for all of us, except Ken, who sort of thought everything was perfectly all right. <laughs> but they, they were very wary about me. I don't blame them either. And I was extremely wary about them. And I thought, well, do I really want to be part of these people's lives? And they thought, do I really need to know this woman? So there was that bit of adjusting to do. There was also his financial situation, which I do not go into in the book because, A, I don't know an awful lot about it, and, B, you know, I'm sure the reader is going to be bored rigid by all those details, but I did, I think, give enough information to make you realise that, you know, he was walking on eggshells most of the time. He was one of these high, wide and handsome people. Uh, Grew up in the Depression. And in my experience with people who grew up in the Depression, there's one of two things that happens to them. They either get money and spend it as fast as they can because they can and they never did when they were kids or else they save, you know, bits of rubber band and, and paper bags and they're, you know, as mean as cat's meat. Well, Ken was certainly not that. He was in the first, you know, money existed to be spent and if it wasn't around, he would get get some more. Now, having been brought up by um, a Methodist mother and a Seventh-day Adventist father, <laughs> um, 
lavishness with money was not actually one of the things I was familiar with. So that was a bit of an adjustment also. So you were married and you used to go on quite a few sort of uh, bush road trips, right? Kind of little ones, baby ones, little tiny ones on tarmac all the way. Um, Yeah, getting married wasn't my idea, actually. I thought, um, but he wanted to because I think he wanted to make some kind of grand romantic statement. Yeah, he was a he was a huge he was Irish, hugely romantic, and so that was that was nice actually. That was great. But no, we went to trips down to places like the Southern Highlands and around them and the mountains and things. He was always, and the other thing, getting back to this different characters thing. If he was settled, he'd sort of long for domesticity and all that. As soon as we were settled, let's go. You know, it was just one of those paradoxical things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so how long were you married for? We were married actually for three and a half months. <laughs> and that was it came to a very difficult end. And that was the bit of the book I wrote first, actually. The, the, the reason, the way Ken and the marriage ended. What actually drove you or made you want to write this memoir at all? It's a good question. It's, it took a while to get over the whole sequence, not just the way it ended, but the whole, the fact that, you know, life had gone off in one direction. I mean, anyone who's been in a similar situation will tell you this, that you, you, you're off in one direction and then, and it's with one person and that person's no longer there. Well, you think, well... Hmm, okay, now what? And so having to think about that and what I wanted to do and in terms of my own life with Ken no longer there, as I say, it took a while, but the thing about it was that I thought I'd, I tend to want to write things down to make sense of them. And so I couldn't write Ken down without for a long time because there was just, it was not only, not just too raw, which it was, but that, that fades, that, that didn't stick around all that long, really, a couple of years, I think. But I thought, am I going to be encased in this for the rest of my life? No, I'm not. So I started trying to write about it then. And, and then life got busy again, and I wrote a lot more books and, and so on and so forth. And Ken became a kind of a benign spirit at the back of my head, if you like, you know, and and I just uh, things that happen, and I'd kind of know that I was catching his eye, which was, oh, really? Did that really happen? And all of that, and I did. After a while, I thought I want to put that into words because it's a good, it's a good story. He is a fabulous character, and oh gosh, you'd hate hearing that, but I mean, <laughs> but he is. He's a he's a very interesting person, and. Um, and I thought, well, how on earth am I going to do this? I started trying to write it as a novel. It didn't work. It was hopeless. And then I started writing it as a sort of biography with, you know, kind of Ken Cook as I knew him. And I was told fairly brutally by one publisher, well, who's Kenneth Cook? All he's ever written is one book. And I thought, well, that's not true, but nah, okay, yeah, yeah. So I have to do something else with this. But I still persisted in that. And then I gave it to my agent, the wonderful Jane Novak. And she read it and she said, this isn't working. I don't know what it is. It's either a love story or a literary biography. You've got to decide what it is. And I thought, it's a love story. So that's what I wrote. It came fairly easily once I'd broken that logjam. And that's the book that it is. 
Yeah, was part of that, and trying to figure out what sort of home this story should take, was part of that being a bit worried about having to really expose yourself in the form of memoir. You know, memoir really demands that, doesn't it? Yes, it really does, or it should. Very much so. And that took a long time. Mm. Because the problem with that is you think you're going along nicely and you're telling a funny story, and then you read it and you think, meh, and you just sort of think, well, no, it's got to have, this has got real emotion in it. This story has got to have real emotion in it. And that means I have to be, I had to get in and be really, really honest, as honest as I can, without being, you know, blah, banal and, and all the rest of it. Getting that was a really interesting craft exercise and it took a long time. Yeah. Well, you've written biographies of people like Julia Gillard. Yeah. So is it wrong to assume that you can sort of take those skills and apply it to memoir writing? Or are we talking about no, two completely different it's things It's completely here? different. Okay. It's more like fiction. Mm. Um, it, uh, actually, yeah, that is a very interesting point because biography, you sort of, you know, going along and you can do all that, much easier. But uh, with fiction, you are looking for the best way you can say something. If it's an emotional thing, it's the best way. You're looking for the best way you can say that. And to do that, you've got to go right into what was happening, who you are, and you've got to make it vivid for the reader. Well, that is what fiction should do. And I'm very glad it um, it turned out that way because I just felt liberated when I'd done it. And not only because Ken was kind of in hard covers, as it were, but also because writing it taught me a great deal about writing, and that was great. By the way, I should add, without sort of making it too... I don't want this to sound too earnest, but it's short. It has lots of jokes in it, and it isn't inspirational. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) A nice disclaimer. Um, It's funny that publishers said, oh, you know, who's who's Kenneth Cook? He's only written one thing. But of course, that's not true. Are there any pieces of writing by him that you think are overlooked? There are several, I think. Mostly his novels. He wrote uh, one called The Man Underground, which is set in Cuba PD, and it's skullduggery in in an opal mining town. And it's got something of the same feeling as Wake in Fright. It's better written, actually, I think. It's, but it's got... If that had come first, I think that might have overshadowed, but it didn't, and it was written about 15 years later. There's that. There's one called Tuna, which is uh, about a man... It's based on the old man in the sea by Ernest Hemingway, and, it's, and it's, it's set in Port Lincoln, South Australia. He's very, very good at settings outside... He's written a couple of books about... He wrote a couple of books about the city and they don't work, but he's very, very good at taking the measure of a place and making it live on the page. Something else that people might learn or be surprised to learn about Kenneth Cook is the fact that he opened a butterfly farm, an animal park. I couldn't believe that. I know. <laughs> I just thought he was this large, shambling person. But he did. He's uh, He and a whole bunch of mates got together and bought some land up the Hawkesbury. I've spoken to the people who took over the butterfly farm in writing in writing the memoir. Basically, it was great fun while it lasted and, and it did really well for a long time because there were lots of... It's for city kids who'd never seen wombats and kangaroos and stuff. And so they came along and they saw wombats and kangaroos and stuff. And also butterflies because he had this mad thing about insects he was very interested in Australian insects and he used to write um, 
and produce small natural history films for the ABC, mostly about insects. Mm. Wow, yeah. yeah. I guess that sort of makes sense because it sounds like, you know, how you were saying before, how he was particularly masterful with place. And obviously, yeah. I assume most of his books were all set in Australia mm. with that landscape. All um, of them, I think, yep. I wonder where that sort of fascination came from for him. Very interesting because you grew up in inner Sydney. You grew up in Lakemba. Yeah. And he said his, he made this sound really romantic. His father went on the Wallaby during the Depression, sort of went out looking for as much work as he could find, uh, doing whatever. And he went around, as in Ken said, that he accompanied him. I actually do wonder about that because he and his father didn't get on terribly well. Um, And his father was really away most of the time. I think it was that whole thing about having to go and work to support your family, but really it wasn't a great... Thing. You know, men. a lot of men use that as an excuse not to stick around, and I think his father was fairly similar. Um, but I think what happened was that I think he just used to truant, actually. That's my explanation of it anyway. He used to sort of... He just liked getting out of the city. And Lakemba, when he grew up, was a, a place of cows and paddocks, like, well, sort of like southwestern Sydney used to be before Campbelltown got so huge. And so he he used to um, he used to do that I think and it just it just got him, and he was a journalist of course too and he travelled around Australia as a rural journalist, which I think he really rather enjoyed most of the time. So yeah, yeah, <laughs> mm. absolutely. Um, you said before that writing your memoir, uh, you learned a lot about writing itself. Mm. Do you feel like you learned? Anything more about yourself? That's a very interesting question. I think the answer is yes, because having to do that exercise means you have to be unsparing with yourself. And normally, you know, we're all the same. We all want to be nice people and look nice. There are times in that where I wasn't so nice and I wasn't such a super nice person. But and that took a bit of that took a bit of getting getting used to. But I thought. Oh, come on. Because what helped was putting it in a story because it's it's kind of still, even though it's very personal, it's still at one remove. And you have to make it into as good a story as you can as well as being as truthful as you can. And those two things often come in, into conflict. Um, but I think the exercise is trying to reconcile them and make them work together as much as you can. Yeah, and you described uh, Ken's presence as a benign spirit before. Did you feel that spirit looking over your shoulder as you wrote Oh, this? yes. Oh, yes, I did. What sort of things was it whispering? <laughs> was he happy? Mm, sometimes. <laughs> no, there was one. I know I know what he would have said. If he'd read it, he would have said, well, I loved you. <laughs> <laughs> Jacqueline, I would love to know uh, which books have been impressing you lately. What's on your bookshelf? Oh, on the bookshelf? Oh, actually, I've been reading a couple of really interesting ones. Pat Barker, The Silence of the Girls, which is about um, ancient classical Greece and the Iliad, actually, Homer's Iliad, and it's told from the story, the point of view of a woman who is a captive and is captive, was captured by the Greeks, who are, of course, the winners in this. And it's why it's interesting is Pat Barker, who wrote three really good books about World War I, she's really good at doing battles. And this is a, a you know delicately nurtured. It's the best writer about battles I think I know because um, she gets what they felt like, what they sounded like, what they looked like, 
what they smelled like. And it's really also a very interesting character study of the main character, Achilles, who is the great Greek hero. And we've seen him on so many movies, someone based on Achilles, the great warrior, you know, all that stuff. But she actually describes him as a complete psychopath, and he was. I mean, it's and so that is interesting. It's a yeah, nice. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, it was good. And the other thing I've just been reading is a book by Ben McIntyre, who wrote a book called *The Spy and the Traitor*, which is brilliant. It's actually it's a true spy story, and it's much better than much better than John le Carre or any of those spy things because what it is, it's about this guy who was a KGB agent who actually at one point was also a British double agent and what he did that was fascinating was that he wrote the briefing notes for both Margaret Thatcher and Mikhail Gorbachev when they met, unbeknown to you know, to either party or at yeah. least unbeknown to the Russian lot. And it's all about the kind of stuff that you think Spies, not glamorous. It's sort of waiting on cold street corners, carrying a plastic bag and waiting <laughs> for someone to... I mean, it's all that stuff. It's a really good read. I recommend it. In fact, I recommend them both. Both yeah. terrific. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. You know, obviously, you've been a part of the book industry for... More than longer than I care to remember, yeah, yeah, actually. Exactly. <laughs> I did want to ask, though, from your perspective, what the changes in the Australian book industry have been and people's attitudes to Australian writing. It's very interesting, I think. When I first started, which was as a very, very young editorial assistant, was right at the beginning of that big push, which was the middle to late 80s, mid-80s, when you had people like Helen Garner and Robert Drew and Kate Grenville and, oh, a lot of others just coming up and Peter Carey all coming up and there was more money for for literature, people were willing to take chances. It was actually, in retrospect, it was it's never been a golden age. Publishers publishing doesn't have golden ages, <laughs> but it was a golden age. Do we get to bronze at least? Yeah, we got we get to <laughs> yeah we got to bronze. We got to bronze, but uh, there was more money. The Australia Council was just had started up, and was funding writers to do all sorts of things. A lot of seed money was going into writing, and a lot of it as it were, fell by the wayside. A lot of people didn't go on, but a lot of people did. And it started, it was the bedrock of the industry, the older writers we have today, you know, the people who are now in their 50s, 60s, 70s even. And that is what it is now. Everyone is so terrified of taking risks. It's just really bad. I mean, you used to get publishers are bean counters now. Um, they used to be people who'd go out there and say, oh, yeah, we'll do a few thousand of those, see what happens. Oh, it didn't work. Oh, okay. I mean, there wasn't all that much of that, but there was a certain amount. There's less and less of that. There's less and less willing willingness to take a punt. The big publisher, the other big uh, thing that's different, I think, is that there were many big publishers who were opening up in Australia, you know, people like Penguin and you know, HarperCollins or, and Methuen even, and English and American big publishers um, were starting local lists. And they were doing the same thing. They were just trying to find voices. It was a huge influx. That has gone. What has happened now is you've got the big guys, which are basically huge marketing organisations. Sure, there's room for the odd 
quirky thing to slip through, but not as much as there was. And I think now that the action is with the small publishers because they're the ones who they're publishing not all that much, but they're publishing more and they're publishing really interesting stuff. And I'm just thinking of small and medium-sized ones, you know, text or, um, I don't know, black ink or even even imprints like sort of old... I was thinking of Fourth Estate, which is a HarperCollins one. Even that has become less literary than it was when it started. So, and of course, and the other thing, of course, the really obvious elephant in the room is, of course, digital media, which is making it so much easier to be published than... I don't know about read, but published than it ever was. So that all those three things. Um, the second one, the one about people being big and then and then sort of going out the limb. The GFC crawled that, of course, in ten years ago, and people and since then there's been a lot more people have pulled their horns in a lot more. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think there's anything that Australian consumers can do to sort of mitigate that movement towards publishers taking less risks and publishing less literary stuff? I think what they could do is, well, there's good old crowdfunding, mm, which yeah. which I think is a terrific idea. I love that. It's um, If you've got a book that you absolutely love, the problem with the whole deal, getting it together and doing it, it's marketing that's the problem. And that's where the money, that's where the money lies. And that's where the money may or may not be being spent usually is not being marketed as much as it was because there are, because the other thing is that people are publishing more and more. Having said that there's less literary stuff, there's more stuff out there and people are, and people are sort of pulling back on staff. People are insanely overworked and everyone's running twice as hard as to stay in the same place, really. It's, yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Um, you gave us two international books before, but are there some Australian books that have impressed you recently? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I noticed that when I was talking about it. I'm reading Shell at the moment and I think it's terrific. I'm really enjoying it. It's such a nicely, nicely written book. And it's uh, another great favourite of mine is um, and Andy Goldsmith, Andrea Goldsmith, who's an older, oh, older writer, I don't know. But she's um, she's got a novel coming out in April. She is very, very good at people and their interactions with each other. And um, she's one of my favourite Australian writers. Who are the others? Oh, Kate, Kate Grenville, of course. Um Drusilla Majeska, um, usual suspects, I suppose. Yes, exactly. The yeah. list goes on. Well, I've asked everything I wanted to, Jacqueline. Thank you so much for coming in to chat to us about this beautiful book. Hope lots of people read it. Oh, thank you very much, Alex. You're yes. welcome. Thanks for coming in. Thank you.